A pleasure to welcome our first guest of the program. Uh, this is interesting timing, too, because just a day or two ago this week, more than 100 authors, academics, and celebrities uh, wrote a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau urging him to uh, scrap his plan to spend billions on new fighter jets, which they say are useless in protecting Canada from security threats such as pandemics and natural disasters. The timing on this letter, interesting because about, uh, actually just a little over a year ago, uh, our first guest this morning wrote a piece uh, entitled, Spending $19 Billion on Fighter Jets Won't Fight COVID-19 or Climate Change. In other words, the language used in the letter this week eerily echoing almost word for word it points an article written well over a year ago by our guest who is tamara lawrence ms lawrence joins us from wilfrid laurier university in waterloo ontario where she is a phd candidate tamara is also a fellow with the canadian foreign policy institute tamara lawrence good morning and welcome good morning thank you very much for having me on your program well, that's good to have you with us. Now, were you just a little uh, 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 taken aback by the uh, the language in the letter this week, which is, uh, I was frankly surprised when I read your article uh, uh, over of over a year ago uh, and found um, uh, the language eerily similar. Did you and did you know it was coming? Well, I was involved in helping to craft the letter and to help reach out to the rock stars and the scholars that that signed on to the letter so i was involved in in um in this in this campaign to uh to create the letter and to promote the letter and i've been involved in this campaign to stop the trudeau government from buying a fleet of a new fleet of fighter jets for the past year we've we've been having a campaign where we've released not just this open letter in this past week but we've right. had many other actions and so how long given the fact now that you've said this has been going on for a year in order to organize something uh, which does finally reach a point where there there is a document signed by a significant number of people many of whom are quite recognizable in order to to make that all happen it took you approximately a year to put the whole thing together then to well we we launched the campaign in uh, July of last year and that okay. was when the federal government was ex accepting bids from defense contractors for for the new fighter jets so we wanted mm -hmm. to raise awareness right at that point to say to the Trudeau government, you know, we don't want this competition to proceed. And then we had these National Day of Actions where uh, people, concerned Canadians across the country, stood with signs outside of the Members of Parliament office. We delivered letters. We did a number of these actions. We also had a fast against fighter jets in the spring. We've had a number of webinars and meetings about this issue. And then uh, we've been getting... Uh, uh, more and more support for this campaign. People are recognizing that the the real threats that are facing Canadians are not going to be solved by a new fleet of fighter jets. And so people have reached out to us to say that we support your campaign and we realize that this was an opportune time to, to uh, release an open letter and to gather uh, notable Canadians and 
and and and also international support with, on an open letter and then make this public and bring this right to the attention of the federal government and our prime minister Justin Trudeau and so uh, people should know that we we have uh rock legend uh, Neil Young, who has signed our letter. We have other singer-songwriters like Tegan and Sarah and Sarah Harmer. We have famed environmentalists like David Suzuki and Naomi Klein. We have Booker Prize-winning authors, Jan Martel and Michael Ondaatje, you know, these Canadian authors with, you know, fantastic books that have stepped forward to uh, support our open letter. And then we have, you know, medical professionals, uh, current and retired doctors and professors and activists and um, Canadians from all walks of life are really concerned about this issue because the fighter jet competition is the second most expensive federal procurement in Canadian history. This is going to be a tremendous outlay of Canadian tax dollars. So the sticker price is $19 billion for 88 new fighter jets. This is Mm -hmm. even more than what the previous Harper uh, government wanted. But we know from, from information from the United States that the life cycle cost for a fleet of fighter jets will be about $77 billion. And there is a link to a report on our website with the open letter and, um, you know, and, and resources that substantiate the claims that we're making in this open letter um, that, you know, this is, this is, this is a tremendous a financial commitment for Canadians and Canadians really need to appreciate what's at stake here because we have more pressing needs in front of us, right? I mean, you in the West just had devastating heat waves. Hundreds of Canadians died, you know, from these, from the heat wave and out of control forest fires and fighter jets don't, you know, don't uh, solve that issue. We've got a healthcare crisis because of the pandemic and then, you know, this ensuing economic crisis, you know, small businesses are still trying to get up on their on their feet. You know, people have lost their jobs and um, we've got an affordable housing crisis. We still have chronic homelessness that we have to address. And then, you know, most critically, we have indigenous communities in this country without a safe, clean drinking water. Right. We have mm-hmm. these ongoing boil water advisories. And so. Um, we see, you know, investments in affordable housing, in health care, in climate action as the priority for the federal government, not buying new warplanes. Well, the federal government's had six years under the current leader to uh, put uh, some of those uh, Canadian taxpayer dollars into practical uh, applications like the uh, water situation on reserves across uh, distant parts of the country that were promised years ago and have yet to be delivered. Uh, Fighter jets had nothing to do with the promises or the lack of delivery. Uh, It's impeding the the ability of the government to do other things on a financial level, perhaps. You mentioned, Tamara, that you have a website. What is that website, please? The website is www.foreignpolicy.ca 
forward slash no new fighter jets. And you can read the open letter. You can see the list of signatories. And there's also a take action button. And people can fill out a little petition and and uh, a letter goes to all members of parliament uh, calling on on them to oppose this federal procurement for new warplanes. So now what is uh, what has been the response? Clearly, this is only a couple of days old. You've been at this for a while. Your your uh, um, your sentiments, your thoughts and your your writings have been a matter of public record for well over a year. You and many of your colleagues. So now it's only been out a couple of days. What sort of feedback, if any, have you received from the person to whom the letter was directed? Well, we have not received a response directly from Prime Minister Trudeau, but we have received correspondence from the Parliamentary Secretary for Defence. This is Liberal MP Anita Vandebelt. She works very closely with our Defence Minister, uh, Harjit Sajan, who of course is uh, the Member of Parliament for uh, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she has, has said to us that that it is imperative for Canada to have a new fleet of fighter jets to meet our obligations under under uh, NORAD and NATO. What mm. we're saying is that Canadians need to critically think about our continuing involvement in NORAD and NATO because, mm. you know, these are military alliances that are diverting uh, tens of billions of dollars. Okay. Our, our guest is joining us from the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, where she is a fellow. She is also uh, one of the one of the many authors of a letter sent to Prime Minister Trudeau this week, more than 100 authors, academics, and celebrities urging the Prime Minister of Canada to scrap his plan to spend billions on new fighter jets, which they say are useless in protecting Canada from security threats such as pandemics and natural disasters. Our guest is uh, Tamara Lawrence from uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier University in uh, Waterloo, Ontario, also a fellow with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Tamara, what then, uh, if the if there is are no fighter jets to be, let's assume the government goes, okay, sure, that makes sense. Let's not do it after all. What, uh, what, uh, how do we fill the void that those aircraft were to have provided? I'd like to begin by answering your question with a statement that former Defence Minister Charles Nixon uh, gave a couple of years ago, and that is that Canada does not need any new fighter jets, full stop. We have, we have much better, more responsible tools like international law, diplomacy, conflict mediation. We have other mechanisms like the United Nations to help us resolve any international conflict. So we do not need fighter jets any longer to deal with uh, to, to deal with any kind of uh, international conflict that, that might arise. The other thing is, is that fighter jets because they consume excessive amounts of fossil fuel, and it's a dirty type of specialized fuel called JP-8, you know, in one flight of a fighter jet, it consumes more fossil fuel than a a car does in an entire year. Um, That it, it, 
that it is exacerbating the climate crisis. And we have to think also more critically about what fighter jets are used for. These are offensive weapon systems that are used to bomb and kill people and destroy infrastructure. And if you think about how fighter Canadian fighter jets have been used over the past 20 years, they have caused tremendous amount of damage. So in 1999, Canadian fighter jets bombed Serbia in an illegal uh, NATO intervention. Canadian fighter jets bombed uh, Libya in 2011, totally destabilizing the country, killing people, destroying infrastructure, and leading to a humanitarian crisis. And then more recently, you know, since 2014, Canadian fighter jets have bombed Syria and Iraq, uh, you know, um, fomenting the conflict in the Middle East. So fighter jets, uh, fighter jets, um, worsen conflict. They are, you know, aggressive weapon systems that are mm-hmm. just no longer acceptable uh, when we are facing much more pressing uh, security challenges, and we and they just have not been uh, useful in the past. And so we we have to we just have to challenge completely the notion that fighter jets provide any kind of security for us, and they absolutely do not uh, protect our sovereignty as well. And we just we simply can't afford them. Canadians uh, just we we cannot uh, proceed with this procurement. Well, it's uh, it's certainly a, a strong position to take and uh, certainly understandable from where you're sitting. However, uh, uh, many would think that living in the second largest country on planet Earth with a tiny, tiny population and a duty to that population to protect them, that perhaps uh, some kind of defensive weapon system is probably practical, particularly considering that those who would do us harm across the top of our country, the other side of the Arctic being Russia, uh, uh, have no uh, no pacifist intentions whatsoever, and neither does China, which at this moment I think poses a greater threat to the world than Russia uh, and any other power. So a small country like Canada with an enormous land mass to defend uh, needs some kind of ability to at least patrol our turf. We're not attacking anybody. We're protecting ourselves. And if we abandon that, then we leave our national security to the Americans, which undoubtedly we've been doing since the 1950s anyway, but at least we pretended up until now to be taking care of ourselves. We need to be really honest about this. Russia and China pose no threat to Canada. In fact, Mm. Canada partners with uh, China and Russia in the United Nations and in the Arctic Council. There are other mechanisms, like I've said, uh, for instance, the dispute that Canada and Russia have in the Arctic over the Lomonosov Ridge. We are not duking that out with warships and with fighter jets. We are, mm-hmm. we are at an international uh, arbitration using the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea to resolve that conflict. Um, we we absolutely need to cooperate with Russia and China to solve our common challenges. And in fact, if we had been partnering with Russia and China um, at the beginning of this pandemic, we would be much farther along because they have excellent uh, scientific uh, research. And we would have been, you know, getting a vaccination much more quickly, and 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 vaccination and and vaccinating um, everyone as we need to be. be uh, 
also on solving the climate crisis. You know, Russia right now has also been experiencing devastating um, forest fires in 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 uh, in their uh, their forest. And um, well, look as far as as far as cooperation. So listen, Tamara. So many ways that we that mm-hmm. we can and we must partner with Russia and China. And the other thing to say is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Russia's military budget is sixty billion dollars. You know, NATO's military budget is one point one trillion dollars. We are spending more and more on the military, uh, you know, for new weapon systems that really go to had the pocket of the big U.S. weapons giants. So um, this fighter jet purchase is really a call for Canadians to rethink what really makes us secure and what really will defend us. And, 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 and this is what we're hoping will happen with this open letter when we have people like Naomi Klein, Stephen mm-hmm. Lewis, Neil mm-hmm. Young, uh, Roger Waters, uh, uh, you know, and other celebrities from coast to coast, notable Canadians, really challenging this uh, procurement and and calling on the federal government to invest in the real surpri- in the real priorities that will make Canadians safe and secure. On the matter of participating and partnering with China, I would suggest that you go back to uh, and do a little homework on Sino Farm and the Trudeau government and their intention to partner on a vaccine that uh, ended up going sideways and uh, China walked away from the deal, leaving Canada holding the bag and seriously behind the rest of the world when vaccines began to be a thing. Yes, we've caught up. But we didn't do well off the beginning because we relied on a partnership with China that went sideways. Tamara, I'm out of time. I thank you for yours. Uh, Interesting notion from the left this week. And we appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, you've given us to understand the thinking behind the letter. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. And you have a great weekend. Time for our next guest, and this is an interesting conversation that I've been looking forward to for days. The idea of a universal basic income, or UBI, basically to alleviate poverty by providing a minimum level of income to all individuals through cash transfers from the government has been around for a long time. And recently, UBI proponents have pointed to the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, and its, quote, success as proof to them that UBI, the universal basic income, is a good idea for Canada. But is it? Well, our next guest is the co-author of a piece released just a few days ago entitled CERB Problems, underscore problems with universal basic income. A a pleasure to welcome back senior Fraser Institute economist Jake Fuss to the program. Jake, good morning. Welcome back. Good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, it's good to have you back. It's been a while. Uh, the universal basic income has been around for quite a while in Canada. It's uh, We had a great conversation with a, a, a very a vocal representative of the left, all determined to cancel the, uh, the fighter jet planes in our last hour, Jake. Uh, this is a very, very big plank in the left's platform. How long has it been a thing in Canada? Yeah, well, this has certainly been a concept that's been uh, around in Canada for quite some time. You know, we've seen pilot projects in, in different uh, areas of Canada. You know, we 
we know back in you know the 70s and 80s there was a pilot project in manitoba you know more recently we've seen ontario have a pilot project on a universal basic income concept um, before ultimately canceling that project um, so this has kind of been around for quite some time and now there's been a renewed interest in it because of the introduction of the CERB. Um, right. but you know what we've what we've really seen now is you know um, because of the CERB lacking a target targeting strategy, um, you know, it's contributed to a, an enormous price tag. Um, so in the case of a universal basic income, um, you know, what we're essentially arguing is that it would likely be even less targeted and even more expensive than the CERB. Um, so the problems become even bigger in this situation. And yet, uh, I think it's quite reasonable, Jake, uh, given the electioneering that's already very, very evident, uh, that we are going to have an election before the end of this calendar year. Do you think the universal basic income, long the exclusive property of the NDP, quite recently adopted by the Trudeau liberals, do you think this is going to be an election issue? Yeah, it's difficult to say. Um, It's certainly creeping more into the discussion Um, But it's difficult to say whether or not that'll be involved in any election talk. Um, But, you know, I would certainly note that there is a growing interest in this concept, especially. Um, However, there's usually not much discussion kind of over specifics of these of these programs, which is kind of a concern here, Um, because typically, you know, there's not much discussion about how they're actually going to design the program. What's the price tag? Um, You know, it's all of it's kind of right now is very high level. Um, You know, I think that's kind of the unfortunate part of the debate. Um, over the you know guaranteed annual income or universal basic income in particular. Well, it's 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 kind of a bumper sticker slogan at this point, isn't it, Jake? Because it's right up there with tax the rich, also extremely popular. But the bottom line of that one, of course, is there simply aren't enough rich in Canada for the notion of taxing the rich to solve any Canadian financial problem to actually be realistic. It's just not, there aren't enough of them. Let's talk about the universal basic income and the piece that you and your co-author Tegan Hill wrote uh, because the comparison is now being drawn to the CERB. They're saying, look at the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit that came out by during, out of necessity, of course, during the pandemic. That government response is proof that government is indeed capable of providing a universal basic income. So you say not so fast. Why? Yeah, I think the main issue um, is that the CERB really lacks targeting. Um, So, you know, while the underlying logic of the program was sound because, you know, the emergency response that was required during the pandemic, um, there were flaws in the design. Um, and it makes this an enormously expensive program. Um, and what we would anticipate is that universal basic income would likely be even more expensive because um, you'd be paying you know, that amount to even more people in Canada, not just the people who are unemployed or, or the people that lost income. You'd be paying it to everybody you know, between the ages of 18 to 64, for example. And if you were to pay um, you know, people $2,000 a month, um, you know, that would be about 23 million Canadians. Mm. Um, that would be paid that amount. And this would come at a staggering price tag of about $465 billion a year. Um, so this is kind of, you know, the problem that we're kind of trying to emphasize here is that the price tag is is quite staggering, especially if you compare it to, you know, how much we spend, you know, in total at the federal level. Um, just in 2019, we spent about $100 billion less um, than what that price tag would be of $465 billion. Um, So, you know, that that really becomes a, you know, a staggering problem, um, especially when you're trying to implement something like a universal basic income program. 
Well, back to the Serb. And, you know, when, when the program was being rolled out, and you point out quite rightly, Jake, that the program was indeed uh, a, a creature of, of necessity and uh, a very important uh, component to the survival of many Canadians, especially during the early days of the total lockdown. Uh, but the, the, the notion that, uh, I, I suppose, uh, when I was observing all of this and we were watching the government cobble the programs together, uh, the one thing that stood out to me, and this is almost, this is over a year ago now, the directive, ignore obvious red flags, was a part of the creation of CERB. And, and you're talking about loosely targeting or, or, or poor targeting. Ignore obvious red flags suggest that uh, it, it was, it was in, they were intending to sort of essentially flood the marketplace with cash and sort it all out later. Yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, that's kind of one of the main issues, too. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues, you know, published a study last summer um, that found that, you know, the federal government could transfer up to about $12 billion through the CERB to young people. So people between the ages of 15 to 24. Um, right. But these are people who are dependents in households with at least $100,000 in total income. Um, so, you know, in other words, this is basically young students living in higher income households who likely don't need as much support as lower income working individuals. Right. Um, and they end up receiving the same benefit as people in genuine need. Um, so that's certainly an issue because, you know, the ultimate goal of a lot of these programs, you know, is to either alleviate poverty or help people who are in genuine need. Um, and if you're helping, you know, higher income individuals and basically giving them the same benefit as you are to lower income individuals, you know, are, are we really solving the problems? Are we really helping people that are in the most need? Um, you know, is this an effective use of taxpayer dollars, for example? Well, Mr. Fuss is a senior economist with the Fraser Institute and co-author of a piece recently released called Serb Problems Underscore Problems with Universal Basic Income. And Jake, I think from the point of view of understanding, this is still fairly fairly early in the day. My understanding of universal basic income is, as you described it a few moments ago and uh, putting an enormous price tag with it. In other words, the idea being that every person in Canada from uh, age, I'm assuming, 18 plus gets two grand a month, period, forever and a day. Uh, is that your understanding as well? Or would, would there be any attempt to attach means or some kind of filter through which people who simply don't need it wouldn't get it? Yeah, so the basic concept of a universal basic income, like you said, is basically the government ensures a minimum annual income to all individuals through cash transfers. Um, but, you know, there can be different types of basic income programs. Um, so if you don't want to have a universal system, what you can kind of do is adopt a guaranteed annual income, which is sort of another form of universal basic income, um, mm-hmm. where you start to introduce means testing. Um, right. So, you know, you could do things where you introduce a clawback rate. So as your income exceeds a certain threshold, let's say, you know, $50,000, for example, the, the benefit can be phased out. So you're receiving less than $2,000 a month, um, you know, over time. Um, so higher income individuals receive less money. Um, or other things that you can do, um, you know, you can change that income threshold. Um, you know, there's there's different things that you can do to bring down the cost. The problem, though, is that you then introduce new problems. So if you're phasing out the benefit as your income rises, um, you can actually encourage some individuals to reduce their work hours, um, mm-hmm. you know, providing strong disincentives to work. Um, right. You know, there's, there's plenty of problems here. Um, so that's kind of the main problem is if you're now trying to target low-income Canadians, new problems arise as well. Well, indeed. And, and, you know, right now, and we're not even at phase four where everything is wide open and we're uh, really uh, 
operating on all cylinders, Jake, and yet in the hospitality industry particularly, but right across the board, we're already having staffing issues. We're seeing a lot of, uh, for example, in the restaurant and and hotel industry, a lot of former employees uh, not returning to their jobs for a variety of reasons, one of which is they continue to receive benefits and money not to work. So, uh, and you and I have talked about this, and it's been over a year since we had the conversation, Jake, but there was that indication over a year ago that the CERB for some would turn into a disincentive. Has that point been proven, do you think? Yeah, I think that's certainly an interesting discussion, especially around the CERB. I know there definitely have been those concerns in the hospitality industry. And I think that's part of the discussion, too, about, you know, when you're having a universal basic income or a guaranteed annual income, you know, how much are you actually paying people? What income thresholds are we phasing these things out at? Um, Because it does have that potential to actually discourage work. And then, you know, in the long run, that actually decreases economic growth. And that might, you know, not allow us to alleviate poverty to the same extent that we wanted, might not increase the quality of life like we want to. Um, So, you know, there's big discussions here around, you know, the disincentives to work, um, particularly if you do increase or introduce uh, income thresholds or have clawback rates, um, then it really matters in that discussion. Um, as we're seeing here in, in kind of the CERB debate as well. But in terms of popularity, because again, this is, you know, and, and you, and we've talked about this in the past as well, Canadians have a long and tragic history of voting for the party that offers them the most free stuff, even if the free, Jake, isn't actually free because it's borrowed money that we're going to take a generation or two to pay off. Nonetheless, we tend to vote that way. Uh, how much of a... A a a bobble will this be in this election campaign? Do you think? Yeah, well, I think you know certainly um, you know around the the cost of the program, like you said, it either is financed through more borrowing, which ultimately comes back in the form of additional taxes that you have to pay at a later date to pay for today's spending, or you have to increase taxes today to pay for something like a universal basic income. Um, And you know, you mentioned earlier, you know about. Um, you know, having wealthy people pay for everything. Um, that's a popular set sentiment that I've seen, you know, some people say a uh, basic income could be funded by, you know, raising taxes on the wealthy, for example. Right, right. But in, yeah. reality, in reality, though, that's not the case. Um, even if the government wanted to tax away um, the entire disposable income of people earning, let's say, uh, $250,000 or more in Canada, we wouldn't be able to pay for the the full cost of a guaranteed annual income, um, we would actually only be able to pay for between 25 to 80% of the total cost. So increasing, you know, basically a 100% tax on people earning more than $250,000 a year would be insufficient to cover the cost of the basic income program. So that's just Mm -hmm. kind of highlights, you know, the challenge here, especially in the magnitude of the cost of these programs. Well, and you mentioned another uh, important point in terms of elections, Jake, that is not going to be an issue because I think certainly the government is not going to want to discuss it even for one single second. And that's a matter of paying for all of this, whether it's the CERB or the other spending that has, of course, uh, taken place in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II. uh, And yet taxes are inevitable. We're going to have to pay more taxes, probably starting pretty soon to begin addressing this enormous debt that they've rolled up in the last year and a half. And yet you and I both know taxation is not anything a party that wants you to vote for them is willing to discuss at all during an election, don't you think? 
Yeah, well, the, 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 you know, the phrase that we always use is that today's deficits are tomorrow's taxes. I mean, ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, just running deficits forever is not a costless exercise. There is a cost to that. There are, you know, long-term implications, especially for your younger generations in particular, who will likely have to face higher taxes in the future to pay right. for today's spending, um, especially when they may not, you know, be enjoying the same benefits tomorrow that, that we are enjoying today. Um, so that's always a big concern. Um, and especially on the interest cost side of things as well, too, um, you know, the, the typical thing that happens is your debt rises is that your interest payments also rise. Um, yeah. And that's just money that goes towards servicing the debt. It doesn't actually go towards any services like healthcare or social services or anything like that. Um, and there's potential for interest rates to rise in the future as well. Um, so that could just become a spiraling problem. Um, and ultimately, you have to pay more taxes to serve that services that, that debt in the long term, especially um, with younger generations. So that's certainly a big problem here. Indeed it is. And of course, we're historically all-time low interest rates. The only way they can go is up. We know the U.S. Fed is planning increases next calendar year. The Bank of Canada always follows. Our debt is about to become even more expensive. Here's the last line of, of this piece. While the CERB continues to prompt discussion about a potential universal basic income in Canada, many, the reality suggests, a UBI is simply not as practical as proponents think. The piece written by Jake Fuss and Tegan Hill from the Fraser Institute. Jake Fuss, senior economist over there. Thanks very much for getting up a little early on a Saturday. You didn't have to do this, and we really appreciate it a lot, Jake. Great to have you on the show again. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. The Pandemic Impact on Girls in Sport report, which collected data from over 5,000 Canadian families, shows that one in four girls are not committed to returning to sport. If we don't act now to counter this trend, we might realize a new normal of over 350,000 girls sitting on the sidelines in the post-COVID-19 world. The report, The Pandemic Impact on Girls in Sport, was commissioned by by the Canadian Women and Sport. Their CEO is Alison Sandmeyer-Graves, who joins us now from Toronto. Alison, good morning. Thanks for being with us today. This is important stuff. Good morning. Well, I happen to agree. Thank you. Uh, Let me just quote again from your website. The success of sport in Canada will depend on girls' engagements and contributions. So now is the time to rethink how we can rebuild sport with and for them. So what uh, what have you learned from this report? You talked to thousands of of Canadian girls and their families. What what else did you learn? Well, you know... (laughs) Thanks so much for for talking to me about this. We were worried going into COVID that uh, girls were going to be really heavily impacted by the pandemic. Um, They entered COVID facing a lot of barriers already to participating in and enjoying sport. And unfortunately, what we heard from the girls is that those barriers have gotten worse. And it's leaving them doubting whether they want to or can, in a lot of cases, actually return to sport. But what they also told us... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to... Because you used the word barriers. And and that Mm. uh, I'm just curious as to what young Canadian girls see as barriers between them and enjoying sports. Well, there are a lot of different barriers. Some of them are at an individual level, and but... You know, they're also uh, trying to participate in a system that wasn't necessarily designed originally for them. Right. And so even before COVID, they were telling us 
access is still an issue for them. Uh, there just aren't as many opportunities for them to play and to play in the way that they want compared okay. to boys. Uh, they talked about quality. They talked about feeling like um, it's not necessarily meeting their needs and interests. It, it hasn't been designed specifically with them in mind. Um, and, of course, girls, especially teenage girls, still struggle with confidence. They struggle with body image issues, and they struggle mm-hmm. with confidence in their skills and abilities, which, unfortunately, uh, really take a nosedive, as the, the confidence does, as they go through their teen years. And all of this mm-hmm. adds up to them often dropping out of sport at three times the rate of boys in a good year. Interesting stuff. And Addison, I suppose the, 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 the reason we're just sort of a little jarred by this this morning is that, you know, here we are, uh, uh, the BC Lions are going to be playing in, in, in a few weeks at BC Place. You just learned yesterday that your Blue Jays are coming back in a couple of weeks. The Rogers Centre is going to be packed for all of August and all of September as Canadians just dying to get out and do something. Uh, sporting events are, 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 are one that many of us really look forward to sport is a great unifying uh, uh, thing and yet here we are finding uh, uh, this is counterintuitive almost you would expect young people particularly to relish an opportunity to get back together and play anything just to get together and do something fun so tell us why there's this reluctance among um, we're talking 25 percent of young canadian girls that's a huge percentage it sure is. And, you know, when we talk to the girls about the impact of COVID on them, particularly as it relates to sport, they really reinforce just how valuable sport is for their mental and physical health. And, of course, then how important it is that we get them playing again. Mm-hmm. They talked about missing friends. Absolutely. Um, and they said, you know, you know, coaches and program leaders, they've tried to offer things through COVID, but it's just not the same. Sure. Um, they are struggling with, uh, with mental health. They're talking about depression. They're talking about struggling to manage stress. You know, some of them are saying, my friends are, are you know, are struggling with eating disorders. You know. And then related, there's the physical health aspect. They don't feel fit. Um, and they're not liking how their bodies feel. And they're not liking how their bodies look. So you think this would send them running back to sport. But exactly. You know, a, lot, a lot of them won't be able to afford it in the same way they used to because their family finances have changed mm-hmm. and they may just feel like I'm not as comfortable in my own skin as I used to be. I'm not sure if this is, if, if I want to go back to a place where I'm sort of on display and performing. So there are a lot of different things that really varies by girls, which means we need to talk to them. Right. About What about the types of sports that are offered to young Canadian women and girls, Allison? Uh, I mean, we're, we, we, they play soccer, they play baseball, they play hockey, they play all the sports that boys play. But should there perhaps be more options available to them uh, that perhaps aren't available to boys? Would there, uh, is there something missing there in the menu of offerings for girls? Well, certainly we have made so much progress in Canada towards inclusion in the sports system, but we do have a ways to go yet. And I think it's both what's being offered, but also how it's being offered. So, uh, you know, there, there are still fewer opportunities for girls, which means they have less choice. And we know that choice and and the freedom to, to, to decide how you want to play um, really makes a a positive impact in, in girls, you know, commitment to sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when they do play, often they're playing with, you know, folks who have been sort of 
trained and raised in a male model of sport. And what we understand is that girls sometimes need things that are a bit different. They need to have themselves reflected in the sport that's being offered. And so uh, there's a really strong case for coaches to access training that helps them really better understand girls, better understand what they're looking for, some of the things that they're dealing with that are unique, Mm -hmm. and so that they can really tailor make the experience so that is really resonating with the girls and really a compelling um, experience for them. Well, you know, the Olympics are coming up in just a few weeks. It'll be a quiet affair, but it'll be certainly uh, all, all over TV. And the Olympics offer opportunities for for other sports, those sports that, you know, we only cheer for curling, at least in my house, once every four years when the Winter Olympics are on. It, it, you know what I mean, Allison? There are more, uh, more, more interesting uh, sport opportunities there that perhaps they don't even have, they've never tried even in their, in their schooling experience and so on. Might that provide a bit of stimulus? Absolutely. And in fact, the Olympics and Paralympics are the single best opportunity to see women playing sport on our TVs. We're just kind of absent <laughs> during the rest of the year. Right. And right. it's a wonderful celebration also of women's sport, which can provide a lot of inspiration and also an opportunity for parents, for coaches, you know, people with girls in their lives to talk to them, to say, you know, what do you love about sport? What do you miss about sport? What might be holding you back from returning And how can I support you to come back to sport and have a great experience? Well, that, and that's a really good question. Can you help me answer that? Because uh, uh, I, I think a lot of parents listening to this, and, and, and I think uh, many assuming that, well, just give her an opportunity and my daughter will be right back, right? Just playing, just while well, you're saying one in four young Canadian women and girls are will not return to sport after the pandemic. That's an enormous number. So to moms and dads who are, who are anxious to see perhaps their daughter return to some kind of sporting or athletic activity, you ask the question rhetorically, what can I do to support you? Well, give us an idea. Give us a couple of hints there, Allison, please. Well, the good news is that it's not too late. Girls are really in a decision moment as sport has yet to fully resume. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's lots, I would say, that we can do now so that this doesn't become a legacy of COVID. Uh, this report that we've just produced with our partners, the E-Alliance and Canadian Tire Jumpstart Charities, has lots of recommendations in it. You can find it at womenandsport.ca. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say two big ones. One is parents, get active yourselves. Research shows it has a direct positive impact on your daughter's level of activity. So lace up those sneakers, get out the door, um, and help create the conditions and the, the environment for them to do the same. I would say, too, we talk about assumptions. Let's not make assumptions. We know a lot has changed in the last 18 months. Girls have changed, too. And so really getting back in touch with them and their motivation and understanding what are they telling you about their barriers uh, so that when we look for a sport opportunity or when we're designing a sport opportunity, we're really addressing those so that uh, girls show up and they stay in the game. Right, indeed. That's it's Showing up is one thing. It's sticking around and, and seeing the season through. That's the real challenge. Allison, thank you very much for this. Uh, the report, by the way, it's called The Pandemic Impact on Girls in Sport. It is really worth a read. If you have a girl in your life, uh, pay attention to this one. And as, as Allison said, it's at their website, Women and Sport. 
Canadianfarmers.ca. Allison Sandmeyer Graves is the CEO of Canadian and joining us this morning from Toronto. Enjoy the Jays games. I know you're going to go to one. Allison, thanks so much for this this morning. Thank you. Much appreciated. Uh, we had Anita Huberman from the Surrey Board of Trade on our program last weekend, singing the praises of Canada's fastest growing city and talking to us about the ongoing Surrey transformation. One of the players on the field making the Surrey transformation happen, happen rather, is Key Marketing. Key Marketing is an innovative pre-construction real estate marketing and sales firm. They sold 368 homes in Surrey in the last couple of months. The president of Key Marketing, joining us from North Vancouver, is Cam Good here to talk about another opportunity for more housing in Canada's fastest growing city. Mr. Good, Cam, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Now, tomorrow you start the uh, the display and uh, running up the flagpole of Oak and Onyx. This is another new development. Tell us about this and most importantly, where it is, because it's going to be part of the SkyTrain extension. Yes? It is. Uh, it is. Oak and Onyx is probably the most luxurious wood frame condos available in Surrey. It's 175 homes at 140 Street and 96 Ave, adjacent to the natural beauty of the uh, Green Timbers Urban Forest Park in Surrey. Okay. And it is, most importantly, on uh, the extension of the Surrey Skytrain Lane. It's a 3 to $4 billion project announced by Justin Trudeau or made official by Justin Trudeau about a week ago, and it's really accelerated the whole program at Okanonics. Well, indeed. And of course, uh, given the pattern that SkyTrain has established, Cam, since the 1980s, it's not at all unusual to find that now that we have the extension planned out, now that we have the station locations identified, each of those stations is, as is the case with the entire SkyTrain line, each of those stations is going to be a pocket of housing, isn't it? It is. And this is the next one. And, And Savvy Investors seem to follow investment from government. And when they see three or four billion dollars being invested, they, they, they move with that, with that momentum. And right. it seems to work out very well for them. So now what's the, uh, what is the, the thing about tomorrow? Because I know that I, I received notice about September 18th. Is this the preview day? Is this the unveiling of Oak and Onyx then, Cam? Well, we've been building up for Oak and Onyx <clears throat> for about two months. And, uh, Yesterday, we started writing contracts with our, you know, our regular realtors, our, our long, long-time sort of partners in the realtor community. Mm-hmm. And uh, tomorrow um, is the grand celebration. What's happening today is uh, more realtors are coming in with their clients. We're already fully booked today. And I fully expect that this project will sell out today. And tomorrow will be a celebration. We've got a DJ, red carpet, security, food trucks, ice cream. Oh, my. It's going to be fun. So, as I said in the preamble, you, in just March and April, sold 368 homes in Surrey. How many houses or homes will this new Oak and Onyx uh, complex include, Cam? 175 homes, and they're all going to be sold out today. Wow. Uh, so, and, and when did they go on sale initially? Well, we've been building up, working with realtors, educating the community about the opportunity for a couple of months, and we just right. started writing contracts yesterday. Yesterday, so two days, in two days, you're going to sell 176 homes. Guaranteed, 100%. Wow. It's not unusual. What's different is it's sort of back to normal, which is kind of fun because I like people and I like seeing them. In our last launch, which was called Q5 in Wally, 
we built that one up over a similar time period. It was longer because we had to do private previews for people in the sales center because we were right. ramping up to the third wave at that time. And uh, it was great. It was a challenge. And on the day we wrote contracts, we sold out actually in two and a half hours. But nobody was there. All 141 homes sold to people that were sitting in the comfort of, the, of their living rooms. It was a virtual uh, event, huh? Yeah, 100%. Wow. So this at least is in person right now. Is it too late? Suppose now somebody listening to us this morning at 823 on a Saturday hears, well, there's this new thing. We've driven by it a couple of times, kind of a nice looking place. What do you mean it's sold out? It isn't even open yet. So is there an opportunity left or uh, is it, it, should we go by and have a look? Do Do I need to take a realtor with me when I show up? What's the deal? Well, there are going to be some homes left today. Um, I mean, there are going to be some homes left when we open up at noon and people are welcome to come. We are fully booked with appointments and we are uh, strictly working within current COVID protocols. We're limiting capacity with inside the sales center. Of course, um, sure. There's 50 people. There's sanitization stations. If people come, we're not going to turn them away. Right. And, and they're not too late. The fact is we have uh, another launch coming from the same developer just next month. Um, and we have thousands of homes coming to Surrey. It is the fastest growing city in Canada. It's going to be the biggest city in BC in 2030. That's right. And, uh, it's going to double in size by 2040. There's lots coming. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, as I said at, at the outset, we had Anita Huberman from the uh, Surrey Board of Trade on with us last Saturday, literally singing the praises. And of course, this in the wake of the trans- transportation uh, announcements or re-announcements, if you will, from the, the feds and the province with respect to the SkyTrain extension, uh, basically pointing to the fact that, as you just have, uh, it will be the largest city in the province in less than 10 years, and more attention needs to be paid to it uh, more urgently all the time. Uh, and uh, this this development, I think the fact that you're going to sell 176 homes in two days is pretty good indicator of, of the, the incredible strength of growth that's going on in Surrey right now, Cam. It is incredible. Surrey is a great place, and uh, I think people are, are finally realizing it. It may have had a stigma. It may have played second fiddle to Vancouver for, for a very, very long time. But uh, the buyers I'm seeing in the sales center, I just love them. They're wonderful people. Um, and from being in our part of the business, I can tell you, having been doing this a very long time now, I really, really, really love the market right now. I haven't enjoyed uh, sometimes in the past being associated with um, you know, the, the evil foreign buyer, which are quite often new immigrants being mistaken as foreign buyers. And I really love that 100% of the buyers right now are Canadian locals. Their parents helping kids buy, and there's great immigration stories. Uh, people Good stuff. I'm, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do here, Cam. Is direct people to your website, which is Oak Onyx. Uh, .ca, oakonyx.ca, and all the information about where you can find this uh, wonderful new development is right there at oakonyx.ca. Uh, Cam Good, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, I'd say we wish you considerable success, but that apparently is already upon you. Thanks for being with us this morning very much. Yeah, we appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.